Because at our house, um, we have a crazy picture-taking person. It's not me, just to give you an idea. It's, it's my husband. And to give you an idea of how crazy he is about taking pictures, when we had our firstborn, um, we left the hospital with over a thousand pictures. And we currently stand at over 135,000 photos on two hard drives, two external hard drives that get backed up regularly just so that we don't lose them. And I'm really grateful to my husband for taking all these pictures. However, it does mean that wherever we are and whatever we're doing, he's not actually with us. He's recording it so that we can look at it later while actually not enjoying it. We've had many conversations about that, and I love the fact that we do have pictures. In fact, that's always his justification for taking them. He says to me, you always love to look at them. And he's right, but there's only one problem. I cannot remember the steps that it takes to access the external hard drive to get to the photographs. And they're, they're all there. It's backed up, but we have several copies of each picture and of course, my husband is trying to be helpful. However, unless it's taken on my phone, I don't know how to get to it, so I can't look at it, and I can't put it on social media, and I can't use it, and we almost never see those pictures, all 135,000 of them. If I could only figure out how to access them, our problems would be solved, but it's, it's not that straightforward. It's, it's got a lot of steps, and my husband, when he does it, he always does it with no problem. Somehow, when I try, it's a very frustrating, exasperating experience, and I make sure to tell him about that. So this illustration isn't just to tell you about us. It, it, it helps us get into our topic this morning, which is, of course, Christ alone. And the snapshots or the photos that we've been taking of the five sole of the Reformation um, are referenced by the pictures that we have because it's important for us to look back at the history of these five sole, what they meant to the reformers, and what these people were responding to in their own time. Because once we understand that, we can come into our own time and understand what it means to us. For Martin Luther, the origin of his reaction was that his, he had his own feeling of helplessness and hopelessness to live up to the requirements of salvation as he had previously understood it. But once he had discovered the overwhelming grace of God, he took issue with the fact that the church was mediating contact with the grace of God. He had come in contact with God's grace, and he didn't want the church to keep that grace from the people. So solus Christus, or Christ alone, was the reformer's reaction to the church, the institution, putting itself in the place of Christ as mediator of people's connection to God. And the church did that by creating a long, multi-layered process to access God's grace and to secure salvation, much like my husband's hard drive of photography. Long, multi-layered process. So the problem wasn't necessarily about Christ and who he was, but the problem that was being addressed by Solus Christus was the misrepresentation and the diminishing of the work of Christ. The debate centered on this sacramental system that Rome had constructed, a system in which the grace of Christ was mediated to the people through a system of priests and works. And the, assur the assurance of salvation seemed for the people forever out of reach. 
One commentator observes it this way, in Solus Christus, we see one of the major issues of the Reformation. The church had clouded the gospel by adding assistants or helpers to the mix of salvation. Rome preached a gospel of Jesus and. Jesus and Mary, Jesus and purgatory, Jesus and the saints, Jesus and works of charity, Jesus and indulgences. Luther and the reformers cleared the fog by ridding the church of the helpers in salvation. They preached the gospel once again in all its clarity. Christ and Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. Amen. That does uh, merit some, some applause. Now, before we get too judgmental of the Roman church, too critical of what they did, I wonder if we ourselves are innocent of having a gospel of Jesus and. We're not here simply this morning to rehearse what Solus Christus meant to Luther and the reformers 500 years ago and simply to retrace its history. We're talking about this here this morning because we need to know what Christ alone means and should mean to us right here and right now. So my question this morning is, have there been or are there right now other mediators that we have been tempted to put in place or add to the gospel of Christ alone? There are two main ways that this is going to translate into our church today, just as it did for the reformers. The first one is institutionally. And the second one is personally or individually. The appeal during the Reformation was mostly towards the institution of the church, but it also was meant to be experienced very personally. And in fact, the Reformation came out of the very personal experiences of the reformers. So institutionally, we'll start there. It's not unique to Christianity or even to modern times that the established church wanted to keep the right to mediate through whom or through what God could exercise his power, or upon whom or through whom God could endow his grace or his Holy Spirit. It was not a new thing in the time of Martin Luther and the reformers that religious leaders wanted to be the sole gateway or mediators of God's power and authority in the lives of people. In fact, this attitude is as old as the church and, and quite possibly even as old as religion itself. Think about this. Before the sacramental system of Christianity, there was the sacrificial system of the Hebrews and many other religions with their systems and their structures in place that are meant to contain the grace or contact with God. These systems, the sacramental system and the, the sacrificial system, both of these systems developed as time passed. Both of them were originally set up to point to salvation in Jesus Christ, weren't they? The sacraments and the sacrifices designed to point to the salvation in Jesus Christ, but as these systems developed and as time passed, these structures themselves began to take the place of the person that they were intended to point to. The infant church, the infant Christian church, faced this tension from the very beginning. The organized religion of Jesus' time with its leaders did not want anyone exercising the authority or power of God 
or distributing his grace outside of their set order and system of things. In fact, we can find a compelling account of this very tension in Acts chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open to Acts chapter 4. The religious leaders felt so strongly about protecting their system and their structure that they resorted to all sorts of means to protect what they had built and to maintain their position of power and control. And here in Acts chapter 4, we have two of the disciples, Peter and John, who are preaching and teaching and healing and doing a lot of things that are getting a lot of attention. People were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They're preaching in the name of Jesus. And not only did this get the attention of many believers who were converted, but it also got the attention of the religious leaders. Let's read together in Acts chapter 4, verses 5 to 7. The next day, rulers and elders, teachers of the law, met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? This question obviously was in relationship to the fact that they had done a miraculous healing in front of many, many people, and because of that healing in the name of Jesus, many people were beginning to follow and to believe, put their faith in Christ. And the religious leaders ask this question, by what power or by what name did you do this? Since the official religious body had not sanctioned or empowered them, the leaders felt compelled to ask, who gave you permission to do these things? By what authority? By what power? In other words, you don't have our permission to do what you're doing. And as the established religion, we are the ones who mediate the power of God. We are the ones who mediate the power of salvation. We are the ones who decide when grace is given and when it is not. So how did the disciples respond to this line of questioning? How did they respond to the objection from the established religious structure? They responded the same way that the reformers did. They responded with Christ alone with solus Christus. Read with me, continuing in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There it is. Solus Christus. Peter answers, you want to know? Where the power comes from? You want to know how this healing has taken place? It is the power of Christ alone. There is no other name. There is no other mediator. There is no other savior. Not the power of tradition or of doctrine, nor of law, nor of hierarchy, nor of mediated authority. No other name. Christ alone. 
Now, if this sounds like heresy to you, you're not alone. It did sound like heresy to the religious leaders of Peter's time. It sounded like heresy also to the religious leaders in the time of Martin Luther and the Reformers. In fact, these are the things that caused many of the religious leaders to reject Jesus and to crucify him and to forbid his gospel to be preached. I'd like to pause here for just a moment to notice a couple of things that Peter says in verses 11 and 12. He's actually quoting from Psalm 18 when he says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. First of all, there are the religious leaders that are referred to as builders who have rejected Jesus. And second, Jesus has become the cornerstone of something. The reference to building and to the cornerstone is no small thing to be overlooked here. First of all, let's look at a definition of cornerstone. A cornerstone is the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation, important since all other stones will be set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. The religious leaders were building something. It says, you builders. They were building something, but they were building it without the cornerstone. They were building something without Christ, some other church, some other kingdom, but without the cornerstone, what does their building look like? The cornerstone is meant to make the foundation straight and solid. Every other stone in the building is lined up with this stone. So without the cornerstone, I asked my 11-year-old son, what would happen without the cornerstone? And he said, the building would be crooked. If he can grasp that, can we not all grasp that this morning? That if the builders had rejected the stone that had become the cornerstone, their building is crooked and distorted. It is unstable and unreliable. It is lined up with some other stone resting on some other foundation. But Peter also tells us that Jesus has become the cornerstone. Jesus, though rejected by those builders, has become the cornerstone of another building. He has become the cornerstone of God's kingdom, and he has become the cornerstone of our salvation. And by nature of the cornerstone, everything else, how much? Everything else in God's kingdom is in reference to him lined up with him, held up by him, Christ alone determines the position of every other stone in the structure. In building, there can only be one cornerstone. The whole structure that is built upon that stone will be influenced by it for better or for worse. And in the matter of our salvation, there can also only be one cornerstone. There is no Jesus and. There is no Jesus or. There is only Christ and Christ alone because salvation in Jesus is complete and lacking nothing. He alone is our help and our salvation. I'm glad to hear so many amens because believe it or not, this is not always good news for everyone. 
that Christ alone is sufficient for our salvation. It's not good news for everyone. Why did it make the religious leaders so nervous? And if we're honest with ourselves, why does it make us uneasy when we really begin to reflect on the concept of Christ alone? It brings us now to the personal experience. We've talked about the institutional uh, side of Solus Christus and building this building of religion on the wrong cornerstone. But what about for us in our personal lives? This can be a very difficult thing for us to understand and may even cause us to fear because faith and trust are much harder for us than certainty. Would you agree with that? Faith and trust are much harder for us as people than certainty. Have you ever been on a, a ropes course that has a, a rock climbing wall or a zip line or a giant swing or the, one, the tower of terror known as the leap of faith where all you have between you and the ground is a safety harness and someone else holding a rope. And at some point, they say to you, let go of the rope. To trust your safety harness, it can be terrifying. In fact, I've done some of those things and I say, I'm, I'm never doing that again. And somehow I find myself there doing it again. I don't know how that happens. But trusting in someone else when we have to let go of everything else is not easy for us to do. And this is the truth about Christ, about which Martin Luther himself said this, the devil does not intend to allow this testimony about Christ, that Christ is all we need for salvation. The devil does not intend to allow this testimony. He devotes all his energy to opposing it and will not desist until he has struck it down and suppressed it. In this respect, we humans are weak and stubbornly perverse and are more likely to become attached to saints than to Christ. Amen. Within the papacy, they have preached about the service rendered by these beloved saints and that one ought to rely on their merit. And I too, Martin Luther said, believed and preached thus. Luther continues, what I am telling you is that it is easier for us as humans to believe and trust in everything else than in the name of Christ, who alone is all in all and more difficult for us to rely on him in whom and through whom we possess all things. It is easier for us to trust in everything else than in the name of Christ. That is exactly where the enemy would have us. This is where he has centered his greatest deceptions, that Christ alone is not enough, or that we are enough in our own strength and in our own righteousness. This deception, like any great deception, appeals either to our pride or to our fears. But either way, the enemy knows if he can get us to build on a different foundation or to marginalize Christ, then he has us. And then our weakened religion will be no threat to his own kingdom. You know, as times have changed, so have methods of construction. And most important for our discussion today is the change in the function and the meaning of the cornerstone. Listen very carefully. Remember what we said about the cornerstone earlier. 
The cornerstone was the first stone that was set in the construction of the foundation. And it's important because how many of the other stones are set in reference to it? All of the other stones are set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. However, with the development of modern construction methods, the stone that was usually at a corner, possibly the first of the foundation stone, and that was at one time a real support, has become the modern cornerstone. Not actually needed for support, not needed at the position in the corner, and it need not be a part of the foundation as often it is placed ornamentally in the facade or in an interior wall or the floor. What was once the reference point and support for the entire structure is now a ceremonial building block. Usually placed ritually in the outer wall of a building to commemorate its dedication. I bet this church has one of those cornerstones somewhere. With the inscription of when it was built and dedicated and maybe the names of some special people who helped that happen. But I also bet that that stone has nothing to do with the actual structure of this building. So a commemoration. Sometimes the new cornerstone is solid with a date or other inscription, but more typically, it is hollowed out to contain metal receptacles for newspapers, photographs, currency, books, or other documents reflecting current customs with a view to their historical use when the building is either remodeled or demolished. Do you hear the change in the cornerstone? That's just in building. But can you see the danger if we apply this change in the use and meaning of the cornerstone in construction to the spiritual cornerstone? What about our Jesus ands? Is there really any harm in it if we still include Jesus somewhere in the building? After all, the building does need more than just a cornerstone in order to be built, doesn't it? The danger in the gospel of Jesus and is that it allows us to begin to separate these things, these, these ands, these other stones from Christ. And to convince ourselves that these stones still have merit or weight in and of themselves apart from Christ. And that these things that used to be built on the solid foundation of Christ alone actually become the things that we are building on. Things like tradition, or doctrine, or law, or hierarchy, or good works, or add your own. These things that we believe bring extra value to the salvation that Christ alone can provide for us. The truth is that these other stones... They only have value because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They find their definition and their fullness only in relationship to him, the true and only cornerstone. Because only in Jesus Christ do these other things reveal the loving character of God. Only in him do they build up the kingdom of God and not some other kingdom. 
Apart from him, they become false mediators. Apart from him, they become counterfeit cornerstones. And when we allow Jesus to become a ceremonial building block or a hollowed out stone, and we fill, we fill that hollowed out stone with all kinds of other things that we feel give Christianity, that give Christ, that give our salvation greater meaning, greater truth, greater certainty. What we've indeed done is built our own flimsy construction of salvation. Why would we be attracted to any other foundation? Why would we risk any other means of salvation? It doesn't make sense, but you know what? We do it all the time. I wonder if we squirm when we hear Jesus only or Christ alone because it takes away all of our other measuring sticks. Those other reference points that we think make us look so good. Maybe it's because it takes away our pet doctrines or our acts of righteousness or our feelings of superiority or our false securities. These are the things that allow us to measure ourselves against each other and against the standards of our own choosing so that we can distinguish among ourselves to whom is more righteous, more spiritual, more qualified, or more favored than the rest. I wish I could tell you this morning that I'm only speaking theoretically, but I'm speaking from personal experience. I'll never forget the day that I realized that my perfect Christian foundation was devoid of Christ. And that though I had every advantage, things that I counted as blessing and even as the favor of God, that I had built my religion and therefore my salvation on a hollow cornerstone. It happened one day when I was in the airport traveling home from taking some seminary classes. That's right, seminary classes. And there I was in the airport trying to mind my own business when a young woman came up to me looking desperate and in need. She was dirty and greasy, and I wasn't really in the mood, but she asked me if I could help her get something to eat. And so I did. I bought her a meal at McDonald's, which was right there in the airport. And as she ate, we sat together and we began to talk. And she was a young woman about my age, but as her story unfolded, I realized that we were polar opposites in the world. In my world, I had every advantage. And in fact, I had grown up in a good Adventist home, fourth generation Seventh-day Adventist. I have a good Adventist pedigree. In fact, I have taken advantage of every building block that my church has had to offer all along my growth experience. As a young person, I attended my Sabbath school religiously and church with my family. I joined the Adventurer Club and the Pathfinder Club. I was educated in Adventist elementary school. I chose to go to an Adventist boarding academy where I could be even more immersed in spiritual things. While I was there, I was trained as a student literature evangelist and a Bible worker. I served on a local church board when I was 15 years old. Is this sounding good? And when I, when I finished high school, I went, I went to our Adventist University, where I also spent a year as a student missionary. 
And after I returned from my year as a student missionary, I graduated from college, I married a good Adventist man, and then I became a pastor. And I went to our seminary at Andrews University, and that was the situation I found myself in as I stood before this other young woman, almost my same age, but my complete and utter total opposite. She was a drug addict, a prostitute. She was homeless. Her life story was full of tragedy and wreckage. And as I stood there talking with her, I felt my Christian duty to do something that would make her life better. And as I stood there, I realized I really had nothing to say because I, as I thought, I wanted to tell her God loves you. But then I questioned myself. Would I be telling her the truth? Because as I looked at her life, I saw no evidence of his love for her. And as I looked at my life, I thought, I'm very loved. I'm very blessed. And I had no words of encouragement for her because I thought, if I say God loves you, what will she think of God? Because she has nothing and I have everything. If that's what God's love looks like, it sounds like a curse to be loved by God. And I realized that in all of my spirituality, in all of my Christianity, in all of my Adventism, I had nothing no hope whatsoever to offer this young woman. And, and as I was trying to salvage the moment, I said to her, I believe in God. And you know what she said to me? Me too. And then I said, I don't believe that we've met here today by a coincidence. I believe there's some reason, but I just don't know what it is. And the words that came out of her mouth next have changed my life forever. She said, I was hungry. That's it. As simple as that. While I'm sitting there judging the fact that God is not blessing her, she knows her need and she has already acknowledged God's providence for her. And there I stand feeling blessed and provided for by God, but in, my, in God's providence and in my prosperity and my comfortable life, I had become blind to my own need of him. And I stood there that day thinking that I was going to speak words of life into her when the words of Christ himself came out of her mouth. Matthew chapter 25, for I was hungry. And I knew then and there that Jesus was more inside of her than he was inside of me. And I realized that the power of salvation is not in a blessing or in a pedigree or in a good deed, but it is in the presence and the acknowledgement of our need of him. It is only then that there is room for his power to do its saving work. It is only then that we can build on the solid foundation of his righteousness alone. But if our salvation is truly in Christ alone, then how will we know how we measure up. How will we compare ourselves to others? Isn't that what we want to know? It is true. Our false securities, our misplaced trust can still build something, but they are actually building prisons and tombs that keep us from living in the freedom of the gospel and receiving the true transformation of our hearts and our lives that comes from the power of Christ alone working within us. Anytime we are looking for a way to measure our own righteousness 
or to compare our righteousness or our standing with God to someone else's. We are denying solus Christus. Because in the kingdom of heaven, everyone's righteousness is the same because it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. As we put our faith in him and we fix our eyes on him alone, his character will begin to be reflected in our lives and his presence, not ours, will be noticed. This is a message that we need so badly in our world today. This, in, in this world where finding fault with others has become an art form, where we judge and we criticize each other unfiltered on social media, where we excuse our bad treatment of others because we view them as less worthy or less valuable than ourselves. But when we're standing on the solid foundation of salvation, on the merits of Christ alone, we have no need to stand on others or to push them down to elevate ourselves. It is only when we are standing on the sinking foundation of self that we must do that. But when we're standing on the firm foundation of Christ's righteousness, we can let our lives be filled with lifting others up. When our own footing is firm in him, we can offer the strength and stability of Christ to those who are sinking and slipping because the foundation in which they have placed their trust is failing. Back in Acts chapter 4, we find Peter and John doing amazing things. But one thing we do not see them doing is taking advantage of the opportunity to promote themselves. Anyone who knows about the life of Peter knows that he is far from perfect. Praise God. <laughs> but at this moment in Acts chapter 4, he gets it absolutely right. Any one of us would be happy to take credit or to publish our successes if we were having the experiences that Peter and John were having. People were being healed. People were being added to the church. It says that after this sermon and healing event, the church had grown to 5,000. Which one of us wouldn't be happy to come back from the mission field or some evangelistic series to report that we had baptized 5,000? And the disciples were even being arrested. What a great story that would be. Most of us would be eager to say, hey, did you see what I did back there? But when the crowd is amazed that the crippled man has been healed, look at how Peter responds. Acts chapter 3 Verses 11 to 13 and verse 16. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? Skipping over Oh, let's see. No, we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is the, in Jesus' name and faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you all can see. So here's a moment when, when the disciples have an opportunity to glorify themselves, to, to revel in the work that they are doing. But instead, he points clearly to the only source of power and complete healing, 
the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus gives credit to the power in the name of Jesus time and time again in this story. And, and it has its desired effect. What do you think Peter is trying to do? To have people looking at him? His goal is to make Christ visible. Acts chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. After all this has happened and Peter has given his sermon about the, the rejection and the, the cornerstone and salvation being found in no one else, we go to verse 13. And it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they meaning the religious leaders and all the people that were watching, and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with him, there was nothing they could say. They were building on the right foundation. Their power was not in themselves and their pride was not in their own works or their own influence. They were simply living the truth that they were preaching. The evidence of Christ's power in their lives was irrefutable and it was so clear to everyone that they had no special qualities of themselves. Nothing to recommend them except for that they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The ways of humanity and of the church that Luther and the reformers saw as corrupt will tell the wayward sinner to try harder, to do more, to work, to win God's favor. But Solus Christus tells us to stop. Stop attempting to mediate our own salvation and our favor with God. Stop building our salvation on other foundations or just putting Jesus in as a commemorative decoration to instead put our trust fully in him, to rest in him, to allow him to build us into his likeness. Our only striving is to know him more fully and to believe more fully that he is everything we need. Our scripture reading for this morning, we read a similar appeal from the Apostle Paul to the church of his day. To the church in Colossae, he says, So then, just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Since the institution of religion has not changed much, and since our own hearts are constantly looking elsewhere for assurance of salvation, this issue is still before us today. Are we courageous enough to identify our own Jesus ands and to let go of the false security that we find in other things that we think recommend us to God or mediate his favor to us. When we are building on the right foundation, on the right cornerstone, the power of God in our lives will be so obvious 
that even those who oppose us will not be able to deny it. Wouldn't it be amazing if those who were watching us, like the crowd that stood around Peter and John, could see the courage with which we live our lives in the power of Christ alone and could say with astonishment about each one of us, there goes another ordinary person who has been with Jesus.